Yes, and it's worked this time as well. Fantastic. And it's not picking you up. <laughs> Yay! I also appear to be coming up with squiggly lines, which we do love. Yep, love the squiggly lines. They are the Squiggly best. lines of socialist commentary. Yes, the, the, the squiggly lines are, in fact, the visual representation of liberation from alienation yeah. <laughs> under capitalist labour. We're making this completely for um, as an end in itself, not for profit. Yeah, absolutely. We are. I, we don't. So it is unalienated labour. It, it, in in fact, it, it, it's so unalienated that it takes me bloody hours to edit yeah. the bloody thing. <laughs> yeah. And I don't see a penny, so yeah. To be grateful, unless you don't like it, in which case I'm sorry. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Revolutionary Dispatches. I'm Catherine Wright. And I'm David Bryan. We're back again. Hello. This is like three weeks running. It's like actually becoming a proper podcast. Yeah. It's like, we've never been this consistent before. Not even, not even back in the heyday of 2017. Halcyon. When things were going well. <laughs> to a certain extent. <laughs> to a, yeah. To, to the limited extent that things will always be going, as long mm. as we must exist under capitalism yeah that's a that's, that's a fair fair summary how are you david i'm pretty good i've good. I've, I've i don't know why but i've been in a really good mood today that's good to hear this leads to lots of music really enjoying it what it's a good sunday to? all in all what i've been listening to i've been listening to a lot of marla okay it's fifth symphony i mean mm. i've been eating it up you're not supposed to do that you're supposed to sort of supposed to go in your ears <laughs> put it in your ears and then listen to it yeah yeah. With Mahler, Wagner, then back to Mahler again. There you go. The ring cycle. The last thing I listened to was the new Blues Pills album, Holy Moly. Mm. And before that, I think it was the new Imperial Triumphant Alphaville, which is progressive jazz-infused blackened death metal yeah. for the... Maybe not for the masses, but for the for the discerning few. Yeah, very nice. um, yeah. Someone got me the, um, the iconic Schulte recordings of the ring cycle for Christmas last time, and I've been working my way mm. through it ever since lovely I keep getting lovely. distracted so I'm only like I've, I've literally just today I've got to the end of the second um, act of Die Valkyrie, the the second opera of the four mm. so I'm not even like nearly halfway yet but it, it is a lot of opera to be fair yeah it's a lot of Wagner yes presumably there has to be a limit on how much Wagner you listen to in one day otherwise you start your thoughts start turning towards Towards dark realms, that can, you know, it's, it's like happen. wearing the ring, the yeah, one ring yeah, for too long. Is. That's very, you very will, good. You wear it, the wear the ring too long, you start to become a wraith. You listen to Wagner too much in in too short a space of time, mm, and you, you start to feel Albrecht's curse. Yeah, if anyone knows the ring cycle, um, yeah. not nearly well I always find to get it's that important reference. to it's important to listen to Mahler after Wagner. I always find just because right um, there's a there's a kind of continuity in their style. Wagner was very influential on Mahler. Um, but I always find it's good to, for one thing, listen to a composer who isn't Wagner after Wagner. That it particularly like helps yeah. if that composer's Jewish, just to sort yes. of clear the evil spirits out of the room <laughs> that have been brought Indeed. by Wagner. That does sound extremely, extremely good. The, my favourite piece of classical music is um, 
oh, what's it called? A uh, Brahms, Brahms First Symphony. Oh right, wow, yeah, that's yeah, my that's favorite. Yeah, I don't know too much about Brahms, but I was just like, me neither. Literally, the reason why I started listening to music today is because I found a YouTube video about Brahms First Symphony, and I've, I've oh, never really taken much interest in Brahms before. Coincidence? No, I don't. I don't know much about him. I just I I happened to be listening to Beethoven mm. a bit a while ago. And then I was like, hmm, I'm bored of Beethoven now. I want something that's like Beethoven, but isn't Beethoven. That's Brahms. So I decided to stick on Brahms First Symphony, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I can't remember who said it, but someone described Brahms First Symphony as Beethoven's Tenth Symphony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he himself sort of said, you know, when he was asked, oh, you know, is, is, isn't, isn't the First Symphony a bit sort of, um, sort of a little bit kind of playing off of Beethoven's Ninth? Mm. And Brahms says that the other lines of, well, of course it is. Like, why wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> like, Brahms has got this reputation as a very sort of um, conservative composer in an in an era of classical music where there was a lot more experimentation going on, and you had people like Liszt and Wagner and whatever going out there making very very new kinds of music that were after Beethoven. People started trying to do something different, and Brahms has got this reputation of being the conservative guy who tries to carry on writing in the same style as had come before. But there's mm. a strong argument to be said that it's that it's not quite so much. It, that, that, that he does bring quite a lot of new stylistic stuff um, uh, to the genre, that he was that he's taking the idea of a symphony, which is something that other people were kind of giving up on and moving into opera or inventing new kinds of stuff, um, and, and finds new stuff to do with it. Like Schoenberg, yeah. who's known as like the modernist, um, wrote an essay called the Brahms the Progressive, which, in which he argues this case. That's good, yeah. No, I mean, I always think of Beethoven himself as being kind of the pivotal um, the pivotal figure. I don't think... I, I don't think you can be rightly called a conservative if what you're doing is trying to continue Beethoven's legacy. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. No, really, you know, because Beethoven is, is so sort of, you know, pushes things forward so much that... Yeah, I don't mm. know. I don't know nearly, nearly no. as much Wagner about places so much emphasis on opera because he sort of sees... He thought he thought Beethoven was brilliant, and that he'd basically achieved everything that you can achieve in purely instrumental music, and so mm. music has to go into doing other stuff. Right. Um, and Brahms's position was no. <laughs> Let's keep <laughs> writing instrumental music, please. Well, I'm glad because it's it's good. I like instrumental music for when I'm um, when I am uh, doing some sort of heavy duty writing. Mm. Um, I can listen to. I can listen to lyrical music if I'm just taking notes or, or things like that. But if I'm sort of composing, yeah, yeah. as it were, ironically, then I, uh, mm. or aptly rather, I have to, I have to sort of listen to something without too much lyrical content, which usually either means doom metal or classical, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> or sort of black metal where the lyrics are so like right, right, inaudible that it doesn't matter so much, like Imperial Triumph. And that was a somewhat of a digression. Yeah. Can yeah. it be a digression if we never even start on anything else? That's a good point. I'm not sure if it can. It's just digression. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's how the word breaks down etymologically. Please don't at me, linguists. Um, right. Welcome to Symphonic Dispatches. <laughs> <laughs> I should create a, a symphonic version of the theme music. Yeah, that'd be cool. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to, actually. Should I can't. I can't remember whether the budget to actually hire a symphony orchestra. Well, I could do it on, uh, could do it in, in Cubase or something. But um, no, I was, I was just, I was, I was thinking more, more, more to the uh, 
point that I, th- I, I think our theme music might be licensed under the Creative Commons. Oh, no right, derivatives okay. allowed license. Although I can't remember off the top of yeah, my head. Cool. Anyway, should we start the forecast? All right. <laughs> yeah. Not that I won't leave this bit. I absolutely will. It's oh, good yeah, content. Yeah. But, yeah, um, yeah, good shit. We are, we are, we are ten minutes into recording. We haven't talked oh, about God. politics yet. Um, so yeah, there's been some politics, guys. Uh, it's not just been Marla. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's, don't know if he's been up to much lately. My feeling is not. Uh, not since uh, 1911, I don't think. Shame. These people always burn out, don't they? Actually. Yeah. Well, just, I have to say one more tidbit about Marlowe, just because of that. <laughs> there's, <laughs> okay. a, there's a thing called the uh, the Curse of the Ninth, they always say, which mm. is that loads of composers have died. And write, they write nine symphonies and then they die. Yeah, Beethoven, yeah. Beethoven started the trend and everyone else thought, that's cool, I'll do that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Marlowe tried to get around it. He tried to... Um, well, was it deliberate or wasn't it? But basically he wrote eight symphonies. And then when he came to write his the ninth symphony that he wrote, which is different to his quote-unquote ninth symphony, he didn't number it. He just called it Dusley Bonder Ed. Right. Um, and then didn't die. And he was like, I've gotten away with it. And then he wrote a symphony, which he actually called the Ninth Symphony. And then he died. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. That's brilliant. Oh, did, uh, did Schubert die after nine? Yeah, I think. Because I know the eighth is the famous unfinished symphony, isn't it? Um, I'm curious now. I'm going to Google it. Uh, no, he seems to have right. seems to have produced the tenth. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but one is unfinished, so it depends. But one is unfinished. Yeah, I suppose. suppose. What's the other? There's... We should stop talking about classical music. Um, we should yeah. we should talk about we should talk about um. Let's talk about something else. We should talk yeah, about right. the COVID vaccine. Let's so... talk about the COVID vaccine. Yeah. So there's been some very preliminary data from Pfizer, um, which I do want to stress is preliminary. It hasn't been published yet, hasn't gone through peer review. It is based on a fairly limited sample. But what's the other company? Does it, is Pfizer in um, in collaboration with? Oh, um, Pfizer. I feel we should mention it just because it. I think they're the one that actually yeah. did most of the research, and it's in- Pfizer Bio BioNTech. That's it. It's the other one. That's it. Yeah. So they um, this happened a little uh, a few days ago now, but it, it hadn't happened at the time it last recorded. Um, so they they got some sample data, which seemed to suggest that the the vaccine that they had been working on, um, which was using a uh, kind of very experimental, uh, I think they were using an mRNA um, technique, which hadn't really been tried before. So it's very experimental. Um, but it seems, seems to have uh, gone quite well. So um, from the phase three trial, uh, they had announced um, a success rate of um, around 90%, hmm. which for a first vaccine is extremely good. Um, usually the first vaccine for a disease is, is a much lower... Um, protection rate than that. Um, I mean, if all vaccines came out with a hundred percent success rate, then we'd have wiped out yeah. more than just smallpox. Um, mm. But ninety percent is really good, really good. And it's worth mentioning just how quick this has come out. This is far mm. quicker than any vaccine has ever been made. Obviously, it's, it's not finished all of yeah. its trials yet, but um, 
even so it's just, this is extraordinary yeah which is a testament i think to both the urgency of the situation but also to the degree of international cooperation mm. on on this and other vaccines so there are a number of other vaccines also in production um so results from the british uh astrazeneca university of oxford vaccine are due out soon and the russian uh, sputnik 5 vaccine um which has also shown a, a success rate around the 90 percent mark although that data has yet to be reviewed yes um that also looks very promising. Same with the and also one, I, 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 as I'm, I, I, this information may be out of date, but I'm I'm pretty sure that they haven't actually submitted it for peer review yet, and it's not been published. Yeah. No. Yes. Absolutely. But you know, it, it will at um, some point. So they presumably they wouldn't have announced this unless they were confident that it will pass peer review. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that. Um, as I said earlier, the, this type of vaccine is a, a fairly new, fairly mm. new kind of vaccine. Um, but there are a number of other uh, mRNA-based vaccines in the works for COVID and for some other diseases. And the fact that this one has come out with some very positive data is very encouraging for those other vaccines yeah. that are still in production. Yeah, it suggests that the others are on on the right track as well. Yeah, because ultimately. What is likely to happen is that it's not just a single vaccine, but a combination of various different vaccines end up being rolled out. Which are all very similar, but they'll be mm. slightly patented by different people. I mean, one of the one of the things about uh, this vaccine is that, um, at least initially, um, it um, data showed that it needed to be kept at very, very low temperatures. In order not to uh, deform so initially um they were saying that vaccines would need to be kept cool to uh minus 70 degrees celsius which is rather cold yeah um and the kind of equipment that you need to do that would make rolling that vaccine out to some places very difficult so very rural areas areas without access to um reliable electricity etc in the last few days, it's it has not, been... It's not unbelievably Sorry. cold. It is, it is very, very cold, but it's... Um, mm. so you don't need any special equipment to keep it that cold. That's that's much warmer than liquid nitrogen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, in, the last, in the last few days, um, some other teams working on different vaccines using the same mRNA technology um, have managed to... Um, uh, have, have released data saying that they've managed to keep their vaccines working... Um, at much less extreme temperatures, which is encouraging because if, if that then potentially means that the Pfizer one can also be kept mm-hmm. um, at a warmer temperature and then it will be able to be rolled out more widely and also that when these other vaccines come online, again, they'll be, they'll be easier to distribute. So, yeah, I think overall that's a pretty positive development. Um, very positive, yes. I is, would caution uh, that I don't... We're not really used to this mm. these days, but um, there's actually been a certain amount of good news in the news just recently. Yeah. I mean, I would caution that it's still going to be a fair while before this vaccine is rolled out to the general population. Certainly. Um, so there's something that the, um, the, uh, the, the government um, scientists on this have been saying in their press conferences that they still do sometimes, um, that 
this is something which will not help us with we're in the middle of the second wave right now it won't help us with the second wave it will help us stop there being a no. third wave but this second wave we're yeah. still gonna have to deal with without this vaccine and also when it is rolled out there has been some controversy within the conservative party in this country in particular about who should get it first right, yes so the kind of default position is people at high risk of severe complications and healthcare workers should be the first people to get the vaccine makes sense which is obviously right hmm. but there have been some conservative backbenchers as there always are who have suggested that actually uh it should be uh, rolled out to um young otherwise healthy people um because they are needed to kickstart the economy uh hmm. so as a young otherwise healthy person i do not agree with this <laughs> yes i mean i, so, I, I was a young a that there is a Okay, so there is a there's one thing I'd say, which is that there are people who are at high medical risk of this because of pre-existing conditions or their age or whatever. And, of course, there's healthcare workers. But there are other people who are, because of their social and economic situation, at structurally much higher risk than everyone else. People that work in uh, retail or bus drivers or people like that. Um, I can see an argument for saying that they should get it first as well because they are at a structurally mm -hmm. much higher risk than everyone else. Yeah, no, that would make perfect sense. But um, one gets the feeling that I think they're calling themselves the the Coronavirus Research Group. They're making all these research <laughs> groups now. We talked about the Northern Research Group uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, now there's more of them. Just different factions of conservative backbenchers yep. sort of coming together. It's good news, really, because, you know, the more, the more infighting within the Tory party, the better from a sort of left-wing perspective. But... Uh, yeah, and it just, just popped into the back of my mind something that we haven't mentioned, which is that um, it was a few weeks ago now, but um, Nigel Farage is uh, rebranding the Brexit Party as the Reform Party, and they're oh, an anti-lockdown yes. organisation. That's their, their whole thing now, yeah. is we don't yeah. we want no lockdowns. Yeah, and well, that's what this other sort of conservative backbench group was saying as well, is that they want the vaccine to go to uh, sort of people in their 20s and 30s so that we can stop having lockdowns because we want the economy to you know supercharge we've got to be the singapore of the north atlantic whatever the bloody hell it is this week <sighs> no, man as a box of frogs yeah but there we go um so yeah so the, there's two main questions when it comes to who should get it first there's a there's the question of how to do it in a way that's socially just and there's the question of how to do it in a way that's epidemiologically effective um and i think that basically they line up pretty well don't they? they they line up in terms of the people who are most exposed to it are also the people who deserve to have it first and who need to have it first if we're going to get the overall um epidemic under control mm -hmm. what we shouldn't be considering is um how to get profits up as quickly as possible that's not that should be down the list underneath yes. allowing people to live their lives Yes, indeed. There was also the fact that um, there was a kind of... In the conversation of, shall we have a lockdown or shall we um, shall we take some measures but basically try and get life back to normal before this vaccine, there was a tacit understanding that there were only some people were going to be allowed to get back to normal, even if we were going to be trying to get back to quote-unquote normal. Um, because lots of people have pre-existing conditions or are elderly or whatever. Those people would not be allowed... There was this tacit understanding that their right to be able to fully participate in society was kind of like that was that was something we were willing to give up in order that the rest of us could get back to normal 
which is not what's happened in other countries um like in the in east asia where they've got really really they've had they brought down uh really really intense lockdowns to suppress the virus really hard and then have very very um effective track and trace systems such that the virus is suppressed so much there's so little incidence of it out in the population that you can kind of get back to normal including people who are vulnerable to it because they're just it's just there's so little of it left in the society that you're unlikely to catch it and that was not what was being aimed for here what this virus sorry what this vaccine allows us to do is to get back to normal in a way that actually allows everyone to start participating fully in society again mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that should be the aim yeah right is because there are some people not just people that are affected more by getting the disease but people that are in their life affected more by the fact that society isn't normal right now because there are some of us who we've you know have all these restrictions on our lives we can't get on with living as we normally would but there are some people for whom that is much more severe they can barely leave the house because they yeah because they have they're very very vulnerable so it's not just a matter of giving the vaccine to people who the disease would be bad for them it's a matter of giving it to people who 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 are severely affected by the lockdown first as well yeah 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 um there's also been some slightly less positive news um essentially telling us what anyone who's paying attention knew anyway but um uh talking about um people who have sort of long covid symptoms Mm -hmm. uh there's some they've launched uh, the nhs has launched um or is in the process of launching uh, a network of long covid clinics to uh, study the phenomenon and to treat patients who have it which i'll be interested in Mm, (laughs) certainly because i've been struggling a lot lately um but preliminary data from the first 200 patients to undergo screening uh, suggests that almost 70 percent have impairments in one or more organs including the heart lungs liver and pancreas four months after the initial illness um is that i mean i can tell what's this people who have been of it's the first 200 patients who have been who have been um screened having reported with symptoms of sort okay. of long covid yeah so that's not 70 percent of people who who have ever had the disease that's 70 percent of people no. who feel that they have long covid okay yes. right. 70 70 percent of people who are still experiencing symptoms uh several months later have sort of permanent um or you know semi-permanent or at least damage. long-term yeah yeah long-term damage to their organs I mean, I can tell you without having to go in for screening that my lungs are severely <laughs> damaged. Um, mm. I struggle to walk uh, to the shop and back most days. Um, I get very, very out of breath. I get very painful and chest pains. So this is my regular, regular uh, plea to please take care and not risk your health, um, mm. even if you are. I was being young and otherwise healthy. Well. This is um, this is just completely anecdotal. But someone who, uh, this is a while back now that I was told this, but they had lived in a house with someone who'd um, gotten COVID, uh, and they hadn't. Uh, apparently, they haven't got any symptoms. Um, but the, the likelihood is, given that they were locked in a house with someone who had the disease, and it's as contagious as it is, they probably did have it. It was just um, symptomless for them. But um, they had their lung capacity tested um, uh, uh, quite a bit later, and it was down 20%. Yeah. And they hadn't noticed yeah, absolutely. any symptoms the, when they actually, when 
when they would have had the disease if it was asymptomatic or any long COVID symptoms, but there was still uh, a measurable difference in the way that their lungs were operating even months mm. later. So there could be kind of um, mild long COVID that you don't consciously notice, but that is still affecting your health. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, a slightly different case, but my partner, um, she also um, has similar symptoms to me with the shortness of breath, chest pains. During the period where we actually had the sort of acute phase of the disease itself, she was virtually symptomless. Um, She had a slight cough for about a day and a half. And then for the rest of the sort of um, period, obviously she treated it as if she 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 had the disease but but you wouldn't have known otherwise um whereas i had moderate symptoms for about five weeks um and we but we've both come out with sort of very similar long-term symptoms so yeah the 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 symptoms the symptoms you have during the the sort of acute phase of the virus don't necessarily map onto the long-term effects it can have on your health which is why it's so yeah. important to get this vaccine mm-hmm Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Sort of shows um, that it's just whilst we're on a bit of a downbeat, um, a slightly cynical reading of the vaccine is that uh, the reason why this has come out in such an extraordinarily fast period of time, really, really great achievement, not knocking it at all. Um, but the reason why it's happened for this disease is because this happens to be the one which has affected the global north a lot. Mm. If you had a disease, a new disease, which killed 50,000 people in Mozambique, over a period of a year, it wouldn't even have made the news. No. And certainly there wouldn't be a vaccine immediately, only a couple of months later, faster than any vaccine has ever been made by humanity before, coming out. Mm. I mean, it took much longer to produce the vaccines for SARS and MERS. Mm. And that's because they predominantly affected uh, countries in the global south. They were also less contagious. Mm. Um, But they were more lethal. The asymptomatic transmission, right? With, With them, you were only contagious when you had symptoms. Mm. Anyway, good news, but somewhat tempered, and continue to be safe as best you can, everybody. Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is suppose it's COVID same. has been an, an, a really unexpected, out of nowhere nightmare that's kind of seriously um, uh, messed up this year and, and and the entire world. And this is the beginning of the light at the end of the tunnel. So let's not be too downbeat about it. It is very, very good news. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of caveats about it, and it, we're not out of the woods yet, but this is the... Yeah. And also, this affects yeah, the fact that we've gone into the second lockdown now, uh, but there's a big difference between this one and the first one, which is that the first one, we had no idea how long this was going to go on for. Uh, whereas now, we've had... For one thing, it, we've got a bit of experience with it. We know what kinds of measures tend to work and which ones don't. And we have a vaccine on the horizon, which is such a... a in terms of the psychological space that you're in when you're not being allowed to leave the house... Um, it's a completely different situation where we're mm-hmm. and also it, it adds an impetus to there's a sense in which we, we there's more of an incentive to try and like seriously suppress the virus uh, in, in this one and save as many lives as possible because we know that if we can just make it until about spring then we will have the, or, or unless something has gone seriously wrong we'll, we'll have a, a, a proper ability to actually get this virus gone Whereas this, um, Michael Gove's idea that he was talking about, um, we need to run this hot, right? That, that we need to suppress the virus, yes, but not get it too far below, the, not get the R rate too far below one, because we want it to move through the population, because then we'll get some kind of immunity or whatever. That is now 
absolutely, definitely not the right strategy, right? We need to yep. just get... Because people are going to... We're going to have more people, a lot more people, dying in this second wave. But we know that that is about the end of it. So the lower we can get this second wave, we know that that means that we're getting... We're not just delaying the inevitable. As if we can just delay it, then we can actually get the whole thing under control completely. So the incentive is much stronger to make sure we really do nail this lockdown and make sure that we really save as many lives now as possible. Mm -hmm. I hope that people in government and other policymakers around the country share your view. Mm -hmm. I hope so as um, well. And on yeah. other issues. That would be nice. Yeah. I mean, I don't know when I'll be able to sort of be back to normal. It might be years yet. Well, indeed, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Let's not dwell on that because it gets me down. Mm. Um, right. Shall we talk about some more good news? Mm. <laughs> um, Dominic Cummings. Dominic Goings. Dominic. Yeah. Dominic Departings, mm. as I. As, or, 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 yeah. We won't. We'll spare you the, the, the mini names you can, of our politics yeah. group chat. You can but... this. this this problem left as an exercise for the listener. Yes. Um, yeah, so... For those who don't know... <laughs> um, Dominic Cummings was a former advisor to Michael Gove, who, during the Leave campaign for the Brexit referendum, became very important and influential within the Vote Leave um, organisation, um, was credited by many people with essentially having pushed the Leave campaign over the edge. Hmm. Uh, and then when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister after the fall of Theresa May, uh, was appointed as his special advisor. Um, he has been at the centre, really, of Johnson's Brexit strategy, his COVID strategy, his communication strategy, even more so than the others, I would say, um, and really his strategy in general for, for pretty much every issue um, since Boris Johnson came to power. Um, you probably remember that he became somewhat infamous uh, during the early phase of the first lockdown for having um, driven uh, hundreds of miles to um, go and visit his parents for his birthday and then um, having even more infamously, I would say, uh, made a second uh, journey whilst there to nearby Barnard Castle, um, which he said he was doing to test his eyesight to see whether he was capable of driving, despite the fact that he had his wife and child in the car with him. Beyond belief which, in it, it's, it's, such a, it's quite yeah. hard to describe this story because it's just so weird. It's hard to know what's worse, whether he's lying or whether he's telling the yeah, truth, right. really. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure which. Um, anyway, so... At the weekend, it's, the, it's the fact that he was behind and, and was was a central figure in a government that was asking people to make these very serious sacrifices to try and get the virus under the, under control and obey these very stringent restrictions whilst he was just just deciding he was going to ignore them as soon as it started to affect him that's what i think yeah. that's what really made people seriously annoyed by this yeah but despite that fact the government spent a lot of political capital defending him and getting its Bank bench MPs to defend him, which a lot of them were very, very annoyed by because mm. Dominic Cummings and Bank bench Conservative MPs do not get on. Yes. Um, 
Well, he's so he's, this. He's very aligned to a, a very particular, not particularly large faction inside the Conservative Party. Yeah, but he has a specific contempt for MBs in general. Mm. He's got um, a contempt for a lot of people, it seems. He's just got a lot of contempt. Yeah. But um, yeah. Anyway, at the weekend, the other one that's coming up in my head. Uh, no, it's the weekend now. Just before the weekend, on Friday, I think. Um, it was announced that Lee Kane, Boris Johnson's director of communications, was going to step down by the end of the year. Now, Kane was a very close ally of Dominic Cummings, and so people were wondering what does that mean for Cummings himself? And then there was all this back and forth, and Cummings was saying, oh, I'm not going, and then people were saying, oh, maybe he is going, and it sort of settled down for a bit, as I recall, and I sort of I sort of made the decision that, oh, he probably isn't going. Mm, yeah. And then all of a sudden, there was this wonderful video that I think a Sky News journalist put out of Dominic Cummings leaving the front door of number 10 Downing Street with his stuff in a box yeah. and walking somewhat dejectedly down the pavement and out of view. And I'll try to that image for quite some time. It's a weird one because um, the front door of number 10 isn't the only exit. Right? No. So if you're going out number 10, it's because you want the press to get that picture or someone wants the press to get that picture. <laughs> so either he's decided, I'm gonna do, I'm, if I'm going, I'm going to go ostentatiously or someone has made him go out the front door when, the, when he was fired. Yeah. Yeah. You wonder, you do wonder. So, what does this mean mm. for the body politic? Yeah. So, him, along with other, with like other little very SW one stories that have been happening as well, sort of add up to a um, the Dominic Cummings vote leave faction within the government, if not being completely defeated, being severely weakened in terms of the internal power struggle that always happens within the top of government. Um, mm. Which I think is very interesting. It's, it, Dominic Cummings had this, um, this this very strong kind of ideology of I'm going to make some really major changes to the way that British government is run. The way that the British state operates because it's it's, it's ossified, it's, um, it's inefficient, it's, there's a lot of incompetent people I'm going to come in and make everything much more efficient, streamlined, whatever. And he's presided over a government which has been really, more than I was expecting, surprisingly incompetent. There's been all kinds of unforced errors and, and just bizarre um, missteps and stuff going on. Um, which is, which jars with Dominic Cummings' image as the, the sort of mastermind behind these incredible campaigns, like the Vote Leave campaign. I think that speaks to the fact that being good at running campaigns and winning elections is not the same thing as being good at governing. And Dominic Cummings is, I think, pretty clearly quite good at one and not good at the other. Yeah. I mean, the government under Boris Johnson, since Dominic Cummings has been involved, has basically been running in a sort of permanent campaign mode. Yeah, right. Um, and it's it's been doing a lot of its policy making, such as it's been able to do, given the coronavirus, with a very campaigny sort of flavor um they've been relying a lot on focus groups um and things like that and basically their policy on most areas has just been a case of trying to find out sort of what the public um overall 
once and then just doing that mm. um with the exception of a few um sort of policy areas on which boris johnson has a bit more of a personal uh investment such as brexit but in general um and obviously the, the covid response strategy has been somewhat different to that out of necessity mm. but in general the, um the boris johnson government has been running itself more or less as if it were a oppositional campaign in a kind of similar way to the to the now departing trump administration mm. the states has yeah, you know they they, that, they've both a, been trying to there's a parallel between maintain this idea and, uh, of themselves sorry. <laughs> sorry yeah they've both been trying to maintain this idea of themselves as sort of permanent opposition even when they're in government yeah indeed i was gonna say there's a there's a kind of parallel on that point between dominic cummings and steve bannon mm. Uh, who was, who was also yeah. um, kicked out of the Trump administration quite soon after they won their uh, election in 2016. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and one consequence of that was that, um, I think, one way to read it, there are lots of other factors that have happened over the last four years, but one reason why Trump's 2020 campaign was significantly less successful than his 2016 campaign is because a lot of stars had to align to make the 2016 election happen. But one of them was the very sort of, uh, you could call it unique, you could call it eccentric vision of Steve Bannon. And that was gone by 2020. And he sort of tried to run himself as a standard Republican. The Democrats are boogeyman, far leftists, they're coming to take your guns, etc. Um, so my wonder would be, with Dominic Cummings gone, will the Conservatives go back to running David Cameron-style election campaigns? This has been a lot of what people have been talking about, right? Um, because Boris Johnson himself, when he was mayor of London, he did somewhat embody that kind of social and economic liberalism sort of paired that David Cameron um, sort of affected to. Not that either were particularly liberal on a number of issues. No. I mean, David Cameron did a lot of extremely authoritarian things, mm. but the rhetoric was much more liberal, you know, Right from the beginning, the whole hugger husky thing mm. and all this kind of stuff. Uh, the Changing fact that, the Conservative Party uh, logo from the the torch of liberty to the tree. Yeah, yeah, the environment, um, the uh, fact that gay marriage, um, mm. well, they were allowed to free vote on gay marriage, which you know, in fairness to Cameron, is one of the best things he he did in his entire Absolutely. tenure. Um, as and and Johnson, when he was in the uh, sort of mayor of London position, did seem to be more in that kind of mould. Although he had always had this vein of Euroscepticism going right back yeah. to when he was a Telegraph columnist. And I think so. The Cummings vote Leave faction sort of embody this very kind of Bannonite, I suppose, um, very much like the U.S. Republicans in general of this kind of hammer the culture war stuff, very socially conservative. Um, uh, and using that rhetoric to whip up uh, an anti-liberal hmm. sort of fervor to disguise the fact that their economic policies, whilst they sort of promise a bit more for the NHS here, uh, a, a levelling up agenda there, really are very right-wing and it's don't always, actually favour the, 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 um, the kind of It's, it's always the case that the, the slightly um, sort of economically more expansionist um, we're going to invest in things element of these populist type right-wingers evaporates it's, it's always very very thin mm. so i'm a trump but the rhetoric but the rhetoric's very strong yeah um and yeah one, so one this does... is a point that's quite important to make i think that 
when this uh, right-wing populism started to become a thing in the middle of the last decade, uh, it was tempting, and a lot of people read it as um, kind of like the, the new form that the right was going to take after neoliberalism. If neoliberalism's collapsing after 2008, this is what the right is offering now. But the thing is, it is actually, it's not not neoliberalism. It's just a different faction of neoliberalism. This this kind of mm. more populist authoritarian streak has always been there within neoliberalism. Um, and it's just that it, sometimes it tries to don more cosmopolitan clothes and sometimes it dons more um, aggressive authoritarian clothes, but it's all neoliberalism. Pinochet wasn't a cosmopolitan uh, pro-liberty uh, kind of... Um, no, of course liberal, not. Yeah. Wasn't it? It, was a, it was a murderous dictator, <laughs> but very neoliberal. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is this is not a, a fight between the neoliberals in the Conservative Party and the sort of slightly more um, like going to have some concessions to the working class populist type of conservatives. They're all neoliberals. It's just yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a factional struggle between those neoliberals who want to hammer the cultural war as a way to cover for their right-wing economics and those who want to kind of try and appeal to liberal middle-class uh, voters who might be persuaded to vote conservative as long as they don't you know say too many racist things too openly mm. um both of which are sort of you know rhetorical strategies aimed at different sections of the mainly white um population where basically do you try and go for the um white working class or the white middle class yeah. essentially right that's, it's, that's it's there that's in the, the theoretical basis of neoliberalism as well rothbard talks about this mm. yeah mm. yeah so the i mean so with cummings and kane gone um you now have a situation where uh, people have been increasingly talking about carrie simmons as becoming increasingly powerful so for those who don't know the name that's boris johnson's fiance. Um, but she's a former conservative press officer, so she used to be kind of a co- kind of communications person herself, and she hated Cummings, couldn't stand the man by all reports. Um, and she's also been apparently uh, voicing concern about the kind of macho um, culture that a lot of the vote leave type people uh, had, and the sidelining of, of female advisors, and um, the new uh, press secretary. So again, for those who don't know. The UK is bringing in White House-style daily TV press briefings um, that you may have seen. Uh, we've never had those before, but during the coronavirus pandemic, um, they were brought in sort of temporarily because it was thought necessary to keep the public updated on how the response was going, and that seemed to go well. People seemed to like them, so they now bring them in permanently. And um, Allegra Stratton, uh, who's a former ITV and BBC journalist is going to become the new press secretary um which is a position the uk hasn't really had before um and with lee kane the communications director on his way out it sort of suggests that she'll become the new most influential person within the communication strategy and again she's been very anti cummings and anti the entire sort of vote leave machinery so this sort of seems to mark a shift from sort of Cummings and Kane going out and more more influence with the new incoming Allegra Stratton and then also seemingly more influence with um, Carrie Simmons, which, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. Mm. I mean, on the one hand, I suppose, the virulent sort of tub-thumping, nationalistic, very conservative, very vitriolic 
rhetorical style that's been promoted by people like Dom Cummings has been very corrosive. Um, on the other hand, I, I, I don't know how I feel about... I don't know how I feel about, like, this kind of first lady kind of situation mm-hmm. where, yeah. where it seems like you've got the the partner of the Prime Minister suddenly becoming a sort of power... Bro- I mean, I suppose that's always been the case to an extent. Obviously, you're going to listen to your intimate partner's views on things. Like, y- you you wouldn't be a very good partner if you didn't. Yeah. Not that I'm suggesting Boris Johnson is a very good partner. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, <laughs> I'm sure he isn't. Uh, he certainly hasn't been to previous partners. No. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to feel about it. Yeah. Um, is it better? I don't think it's better. I don't think it's necessarily <laughs> worse either. It's, it's hard to say if this is good news. Um, yeah, but but it certainly news. is news. I think it's an important. <laughs> it's a difference, and it's an important difference. But mm. I don't think you can sum it up as a, a step in the right direction or a step in the wrong direction. Yeah, I suppose um, in a slightly broader sense, there's a there is a negative, tr- longer, bigger trend towards the kind of Americanization of our news um, culture. There's, there's a shift going on. There's a lot more right-wing talk radio in the same way that they have in America. The fact that it's American mm. isn't the problem. It's just that there are particular problems that thus far have America has had and we haven't. And um, and we're starting to uh, move in some of the direction of some of the more problematic elements of American media. Like yeah. the, the salience of right-wing talk radio. Um, GB News becoming a thing. Oh yeah, Andrew right? Neil's new outfit. Yeah. yeah. We were going to talk about that one week and then we didn't get around to yeah, it. Yeah, but yeah. But yeah, it, there's sort of new sort of supposed to be a sort of competitor to fox news uk which hasn't been right-wing enough for right, some yeah. people's taste um headed by andrew neil the former bbc journalist and spectator editor yeah it's, it's worth God. um just just talking about um just very very briefly tracing andrew neil's career because it shows up uh mm. he, he sort of he's a he's he's a a, a piece of a floating piece of detritus that has followed the, the the flow of the negative elements of the change of british media since the sort of 70s that um his first ever job was as a conservative party uh, researcher as a Tory mm. activist um and then he was made editor of, of of what it was a murdoch paper murdoch brought yeah brought, it was the times it was the times yeah because that, yeah. that's what murdoch does he, he buys up the top end of the market and the bottom end of the market so you can't criticise. You use the sun to outride against people and, and be the the attack dog. But if you try to criticise the sun, then he'll criticise you. And then you'll also get hit in the times. Yeah. Um, to delegitimise your ability to criticise. Yeah. That's it. So um, the times had been a pretty um, a sort of paper of record type. Um, it's uh, the paper record, right, the yeah. sort of original newspaper, right? right yeah. The original British newspaper. There's always the... the reason it's called The Times. Did you know The Times, if you're referencing... Sorry, this is, this is Reference, very yeah. much a side note, but if you're referencing a newspaper in um, in, a, in an essay or an article under the humanities um, guidelines, so not relevant for you, but 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 for as a historian, if I'm referencing a newspaper, um, if I reference a newspaper in the text, um, I put the italics guardian the italics telegraph the italics new york times but if i'm referencing the times the the is in italics as well it's the only newspaper in the world for which that's the case it's the times the newspaper right sorry i just thought that was interesting it hasn't been going since the 18th century well well, it illustrates the point doesn't it um yeah but when murdoch brought it up it is now 
you will always find if a story is in the sun then you will find an upmarket version of it in the times as well and that's yep. as soon as Murdoch, Murdoch bought the uh, the times he took this conservative activist Andrew Neil and made him editor of the times and it was he did it into that and then he gets made uh, what was his job at the BBC he's certainly one of the senior political journalists yeah hosted the Sunday politics I think he was politics editor for a bit and then he was host of the daily politics and the week and various things yep so for people that um. think that the BBC is a left wing agency <laughs> There you are. <laughs> they did have Paul Mason as well, didn't they? Oh, sort of, they had Paul Mason as the economics editor. Was he Channel 4? I oh, I think he worked for Channel 4 and he worked for Newsnight, which is BBC. Right, right. There you go. Maybe he wasn't Channel 4. Maybe I'm just thinking of Newsnight. I'm not sure. Anyway, yeah. So Paul Mason quit um, uh, journalism because he wanted to be more explicitly about his politics. Which, mm. uh, uh, no. I've got an ambiguous relationship with Paul Mason. I, I like oh, some extremely. of his stuff, but he's he's, he's got he's a bit weird lately. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wanted Clive Lewis to win, and then because Clive Lewis didn't win, he was like, "We went all in on Keir Starmer." Yeah. I'm not quite sure why. He's not backing down either, even now. No, I think people have got his back up. Yeah, totally. But the, the criticism's got his back up, and he's gone a bit. I don't know, it happens to people of a certain age, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they get a bit set in their ways. I think I've, I've seriously um, soured on Keir Starmer a lot recently because of events. Um, Indeed. And the reason, kind of the reason why I'm so, um, um, there's a there's a, an element of bitterness to it rather than just not liking what's happened is because I've, um, I, I've gone out of my way to try to give Keir Starmer a chance. And the reason why I'd extend, part of the reason why I'd extended so much of a chance is because Paul Mason had. And I, you know, I don't agree with them on everything, but I always listen to what Paul has to say previously. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I wouldn't have held out on him for so long if it wasn't for Paul making the case that he's... So, no. Yeah. So, uh, as yeah well that as... was a digression within a yeah, digression. Yeah, right. Within a digression, I think. Anyway, back to Andrew Neil. Andrew Neil, yeah. So, yeah, mm. it, him... It, so And after he's left the BBC, he's left the BBC in order to be the face of uh, this new agency, GB News, which is... Um, uh, the, the uh, an attempted equivalent of Fox News in Britain to be more successful, more right wing than Fox News's own branch in this country, and I yeah, think which you never can really read. Got much. The reason why I've gone on this whole tangent about British media is because I think you can mm. read the um, the Downing Street doing White House style press briefings as part of this. They're playing into that. There's this longer term mm. strategy of the of the whole right wing movement, both inside and outside of the Tory Party, of uh, of trying to take the. Uh, not just the British state, but the kind of deeper political culture of Britain and Americanize it in ways that I think is very pernicious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I suppose we'll see what happens. But... We'll see what happens. I don't I think know. it's necessarily going to work. Um, I think that there are lots of ways in which Britain is different to America. Um, especially yeah. in terms of our media. We, we have all kinds of regulations that they don't over there. Mm. And the, the press is very different. And the press is very the... different, yeah. We have a much more right-wing print media, print media, yeah, or at least the broadsheets. Um, whereas in America, their major broadsheets, the exception, I suppose, of the Wall Street Journal, are, are pretty sort of they're sort of aligned with the kind of centrist wing of the Democratic Party more than anything else. Yeah, they, which... they see themselves as um, kind of above the fray. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I and the Daily because Mail of that, I don't. <laughs> yeah, and given that, I don't know how far you can. How far right you can push the broadcast media when you've got the press? Because it, I don't know. Yeah, I've always sort of thought that having a more partisan um, 
press is part of the reason why we have a less partisan broadcast media. And I, I, don't, do. I, don't quite, I don't quite know why I think that. I just kind of do. There's also, we've got the BBC. Um, and there's, there's all kinds of problems with yeah. the BBC. But it definitely sets a kind of standard that you, you can't go that far if people could just turn over and watch the BBC instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't watch much broadcast news at Neither all. Neither do I. Um, I, I. I deliberately avoid it. I tend to watch it at election time, and that's about mm. it. Much prefer to read my news or listen to a podcast. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, there, uh, along time. with this Americanization in a negative direction, there is an aspect of um, American media which is more positive than British media, um, which we are also starting to gain a certain amount of, which is the kind of rich ecology of independent media. Um, mm. uh, much of it on the left, which they have over there. They have, uh, they have, you know, uh, the majority Talks report and, and secular talk and the, yeah. and the Michael Brooks show, rest in peace. Um, and we are starting to get an element of that as well. We've got um, Tribune Magazine and all of its podcasts and Double Down News and Navarra Media and, and us. Um, yeah, revolutionary dispatches. <laughs> I mean, if we if we can put ourselves in that prestigious company, I don't think we can, but we're going to anyway. We cannot. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, there, there are many tendencies, not all of them pointing in the same direction, and I don't know which ones are gonna. That's what the thing they're tendencies. all gonna have. Yeah, absolutely. They tend all over the place. Bloody splitters. <laughs> um, <laughs> should we talk about uh, then? We're on a bit of a. I'm probably gonna entitle this episode something along the lines of self-indulgent criminology. Yeah. Because uh, we've done the Tory sides, and now we're gonna do the Labour side. Yeah. Because uh, I love a bit of criminology. I don't know if you do, David. I know you do, really. Yeah, yeah. Inside baseball. Who doesn't? Also. Yeah. It's good stuff. Right. It's good stuff. So, the Labour Party has just voted for its National Executive Committee. Mm-hmm. David, given you're the only member of the Labour Party currently present yep. on the podcast because my memory elapsed and I haven't renewed it, <laughs> um, would you like to explain what happened next? Yes. Um, so, along with the party leadership and the, um, the elected MPs in Parliament and the front bench, the Labour Party, uh, as an organisation in its own right, has um, an executive committee, the NEC, which um, has all kinds of powers in, and is involved in the party running, setting the political direction. Um, uh, it's involved in all kinds of uh, parts of the compositing process, as they call it, the, um, the process of working out which motions are going to come to um, uh, convention. Uh, um, it's not convention. What is it? What do they call them in Britain? I can't get the word con- conference. Pardon? Conference. Conference. I couldn't get the word congress out of my head. Party conference. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, in, in disciplinary cases, which is quite important at the moment, um, are often decided by the NEC or by um, a committee of people made up for people from the NEC. Essentially, it's the governing body of the Labour Party. It's, we don't just have a leader's office which decides things. Um, we also have the NEC, which is a well. It is made up of all kinds of members from different parts of the party. So, for example, um, some trade unions appoint people to the NEC. Um, there are people representing different groups of the party, like there's a BAME representative, there's a women's representative, there's a, there's a young person's representative, there's a disabled person's representative. Um, but nine of the seats on the NEC are directly elected by members. And those, along with some of the other special um, seats, uh, were up for election just recently, over the last month or so, and the results have been announced. So, one other important thing to set the stage for this is that um, the voting system has recently changed. It used to be first past the post, it's been changed to single transferable vote. 
So it used to tend to be that one faction would would sweep the board of the directly elected seats, and now less so. It, it, you've, you're likely to get different yeah. factions winning seats. Um, I think it, there's a slight interjection. It's important to note that it's only been changed to STV for the members' directly elected seats, yes, not yes. for the trade unions' seats, no, no. which has been a point of contention for the left. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, but sticking to the nine directly elected seats, um, so of, of the nine, there are three factions which have one ring to rule them all. Uh, yeah, there have been, <laughs> sorry, it's all right. There have been three factions which have won any seats at all. There's um, Labour First, which is effectively the which is the organisation of the running candidates for this of the right of the party, the Blairites, and the um, and not just Blairites, but people that are of that wing of the party in general. Um, very supportive <laughs> of Keir Starmer they are. Um, there is Open Labour, which is what you'd call more of a sort of soft left. Um, it's a very ambiguous term within the Labour Party, but it's basically people that are neither of the hard left nor of the Blairite wing. Um, and there's Grassroots Voice, which um, can take, which is um, which is an umbrella group for many, many different uh, left wing factions in the party, like um, the Campaign for Labour Party Democracy and Momentum and groups like that. And of the nine seats, Labour First, the right wing group, won three seats. Open Labour won one seat, and the Grassroots Voice, the left wing group, won five seats. So just about a majority. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is really quite unexpectedly good news for the left. At the beginning of this campaign, the left was looking at, because of the single transferable vote system, aiming to win about three seats. After a few weeks of campaigning throughout the um, election period, it looked like it was going really well, and people started talking about, oh, maybe we're actually going to get four seats. And it turns out we've actually won five. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. unexpectedly, also won the, the new uh, disabled members representative. Which is new, and the youth representative as well, and also the youth representative. So the Young Labour has its own um, elections that were also happening. Young Labour is a branch of the Labour Party just for young people, um, and the left overwhelmingly won those elections. Um, and but I, I'm pretty sure that it's both the head of Young Labour sits on the NEC, and Young Labour members also directly elect one of the seats on the NEC, mm-hmm. um, and so the left has won both of them as well, and yeah. the disabled members. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is um, a very, very strong showing for the left of the party. Much more than people were expecting. Yeah. Um, so uh, the overall vote um, turnout was down quite significantly. So turnout uh, in the 2019 uh, NEC election was about 45%. Um, although that was run alongside that leadership election. Mm. Uh, the most recent uh, uh, NEC election uh, election before that um, uh, full full election turnout was 32.5% this time it was down to 27.4 so fallen by 5 points since the last comparable election essentially because um, the leadership election once or always as you might expect higher turnout yeah. so turnout's down quite significantly um, there was also um some analysis run by uh, Lefty Stats, mm-hmm. uh, who have uh, determined that um, due to the number of ballots that were sent out, they sort of worked out that um, overall membership of the party has declined by about 57,000 since Keir Starmer became leader. 
uh, which is not good, obviously. Yeah, um, and the suggestion is probably... Or is it good? I don't know. I'm one of them, so... <laughs> I'm one of them. But yeah, it is going to be largely left-wing people sort of leaving. Um, but uh, that's what these elections demonstrate, is that despite that, um, that hasn't added up to a huge rightward shift in the membership itself. The, the membership no. in general is still very much on board with this much more radical programme that's come in since Corbyn. So... Um, this also means that many, many people who voted for Kistama for leader have voted for the left-wing slate, not the Starmer-supporting Labour First slate at these elections. Um, mm. Which makes sense, because a, a lot of those people will be people who joined the party because of Jeremy Corbyn and voted for Jeremy Corbyn in both of his um, leadership elections, who then vote for Kistama. Uh, they must have, otherwise the math doesn't add up. Um, so it does basically make sense when you look at the way that Kistama ran for leader of the party. Which is, he kind of pitched himself as, I will continue Corbynism in the most part, but I'm going to present it in a more kind of amenable to the establishment, good on camera, disciplined kind of a way. I'm not going to present it as radical, I'm going to try and present it as acceptable to the mainstream, but I'm actually going to keep most of the political direction. It's going to be Corbynism without, um, without rocking the boat in an aesthetic mm. sense. That was kind of how Keir Starmer presented himself. And that's kind of what Labour members wanted at the time. And he's governed as leader, it, not really in that way, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> um, I think that would be fair. Yeah, and so I think what these NEC elections demonstrate is that in his shifts that he's taken between Keir Starmer, the leadership candidate, and Keir Starmer, the leader of the party, he hasn't taken his support in the membership with him at all. No. The membership yeah. still want that um, transformative agenda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, though, even um, accounting for the left's sort of unexpected success, um, the fact that things have switched from SDV, uh, from first past the post to SDV mean that the overall left representation on the NEC is down. Indeed. Um, because the last time these seats were up, um, the left swept the board, basically. Yeah, and, and only nine seats are directly elected by the membership. There's 37 seats yeah. on the NEC. The left doesn't yeah, have control. Yeah. Uh, it's just that. 39 um, seats. Uh, sorry, yeah. Um, yeah. And many of those are built-in advantages for the right of the party, especially when you have a right yeah. leadership. So the leader of the party themselves has a seat on the NEC automatically, so does the deputy leader. Mm. Um, there yeah. are three seats that are chosen by the shadow cabinet. There are three seats that are chosen by the PLP. Um, so, yeah, they they have a basically built-in working majority on the NEC. But the question is... Um, well, not a working majority, but they're always the built-in plurality and then they can kind of make that up to a majority by doing deals with various bits of the soft left and the unions and whatever um but the point is that they were hoping to make that a proper copper-bottomed majority this time um and they have not managed to do so they have um they've because of the changing voting system and the changing leadership they've kind of they've advanced very slightly but much less than they're expecting to and the left has established itself as one of the very very major factions on the NEC mm. that isn't in the leadership, solidly in the leadership camp. That's not to say that they're going to always be completely opposed to the leadership on everything. They're going to try and work together. They are still all in the same party. Um, mm -hmm. But it does mean that if the leadership is going to try to do something which is controversial in the party, there is going to be a big voice on the NEC arguing against it. Yeah. So he, he before um, before the elections, Starmer had about 18 solid votes. Um of what were then 37 seats um, because uh, 
one member, Pete Wilsman, was suspended and the disabilities representative is new. Um, now he has 20 of 39, so he has a very slim majority mm. of sort of reliable votes. Um, but that is a slim majority, so of course if he, if he loses anyone right. on a particular issue, then... And there is also latitude for more progress to be made on the left here. So um, the three biggest unions, GMB, Unison and Unite, all have uh, general secretary elections coming up now. And of mm-hmm. them, only Unite is... Um, uh, had a, uh, a a leader from the left. Unions aren't part aren't part of the party; they're affiliated organisations. So, um, saying that they're on the left or what faction of the party they're on is slightly misleading. They're not part of any faction of the party. But what faction of the of the party itself are they more aligned with and are more likely to work with? Um, of them, it's only Unites that's been more um, supportive of the left of the party. And there are serious left wing challenges in both of the other two coming up. So it's possible, even if they just, if, if the left managers hold on to Unite, um, General Secretaryship, and maybe wins Unison, then that's several more seats on the NEC coming from the trade union angle that are likely to be appointed from um, uh, 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 more left-wing voices on the NEC. <laughs> and U- Unison has been quite friendly with uh, Kistama up until now. I'm, I'm, I'm not really um, into the, uh, the, the weeds of internal union politics too much, because it's it's worth remembering that they're much bigger organisations than the Labour Party as well. I think all three of them have more than a million members. Um, yeah. But uh, GMB has been embroiled in this sexual harassment scandal for a while um, now, and that's really what's dominating the GMB General Secretary election, not what they think of Labour Party politics. Because these are organisations mm. in their own right. They don't see everything through the lens of how the Labour Party is affected by it. Mm. Um, it's just that, specifically with the Labour NEC, um, this isn't the end of the left have, trying to gain more seats on the NEC. So it is possible that they could, given Keir Starmer's very, very slim majority, um, actually continue to chip away at that if they're very, very successful in future. <laughs> in fact, one of the um, uh, the people uh, looking to replace Len McCluskey in Unite is currently one of Unite's people on the NEC. And his case is basically that uh, Len has been too conciliatory with the leadership that Unite should be much more aggressive. Uh, so it's mm. possible not just that um, you'll have more uh, lefty types on the NEC, but also that you'll have some of them being a lot more combative with the leadership than they are now. And you know, lefty are lefties. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And also the um, uh, the 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 funding that that uni- unions give to the Labour Party, Unite mm. is the most generous of these. Um, currently, and but they have just cut it as we talked yeah, about. Yeah, um, and it's this guy. I can't remember his name, but the, the more the, the one advocating unite being more aggressive with the Labour leadership um, is saying that, that they should take that idea much further and cut the funding much more, or at least wield it, wield the possibility they're going to do that much more aggressively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <sighs> I don't really have a great deal more to say on that topic. Yeah. To be honest, I, I don't really either. But it's um, Biff. it's a very uh, inside baseball, yes. kind of um, uh, kind of a story, but I do think that it's somewhat important, especially if you're um, if you're interested in left wing politics and you think that the Labour Party is an, is a is one of the places we should be putting some of our energy. This is the kind of thing that we should be doing, and it's uh, th- this is an example of us being quite successful at, at achieving the sorts of things that we should be achieving. It's only one step; it doesn't. Um, completely changed the world on its own, but it's it's one fairly significant step in the right direction. 
and it shows that um, there's a phrase that was used on a Labour List podcast that um, I was listening to about this, um, which I think sums everything up, which is that um, the death of the Labour Left has been greatly exaggerated. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not the fact that we lost the leadership election and Keir Starmer's the leader now does not mean that uh, Labour is back to where it was before. That the um, the Labour Left is now a much bigger and more able to organise effective campaigns and put pressure on the leadership force than it was before. I think that's a good place to draw a line under that story. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. I suppose then let's turn to uh, the um, conflict that's been going on in um, uh, Artsakh mm-hmm. slash Nagorno-Karabakh depending on your perspective, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, we've been, I've been meaning to cover this for a while, and we kept either running out of time or, as last week, running into some severe yeah. technical difficulties. Um, so we haven't really managed to get um, get to this. Um, yeah, so, essentially... So... The background to this is that in the aftermath of the fall and the disintegration of the Soviet Union, um, the region of uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, which is a majority Armenian-populated region within Azerbaijan, uh, in the sort of dying days of the Soviet Union, the Soviet um, of the Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast asked to be transferred from the Azerbaijani Republic to the Armenian Republic. This was rejected. There were then some violent pogroms um, against Armenians and against Azerbaijanis in sort of the uh, opposite territories, as it were, and then the autonomous status of the oblast was revoked. That led to a major war um, between 1991 and 1994, um, which then resulted in a ceasefire, um, which left much of the former autonomous oblast in Azerbaijani hands. That situation devolved this September into another conflict. Um, And after um, six weeks or so of fighting, um, a peace treaty was brokered by the Russians to bring the fighting to an end, resulting in um, much of about half of the land that was previously held by uh, the Artsakh Republic, which is the Armenian name for the region, uh, the self-declared Armenian majority uh, Republic of Artsakh, about half of their land is now to be transferred into Azerbaijani control, leaving Artsakh with only about a third of the former um, oblast as it stood in 1991. Um, There has been 
considerable loss of life on on both sides um uh we don't know how many Azerbaijanis would have been killed because they've been keeping that information secret but at least 2300 Armenians have been killed um Armenian service men as well as um over 600 uh sorry uh, as well as uh, about 150 civilians and an unknown number of Azerbaijani soldiers so the loss of life has been significant and in addition to this the transfer of Armenian held territory to Azerbaijan is going well has resulted and will continue to result until the formal handover of territory at the end of this month um in large numbers of ethnic armenians leaving their homelands and fleeing either to the sort of rump of the Artsakh republic or to armenia itself um so there's been um a lot of hardship there and that is only likely to continue um so yeah part of the reason why this is important to talk about not just in and of itself but also as part of a sort of broader yeah uh but sort of also as part of the broader sort of regional uh sort of um context is that the azerbaijanis were backed by the turks um under Recep Erdogan, and were supplied with arms by the Israelis, and were joined in the fighting by mercenaries from Syria, many of whom are members of radical Islamist militias that have been fighting uh, alongside Daesh there for years so this is without getting into sort of i mean i I put my cards on the table i i tend to side with the armenians on this Mm -hmm. one um my reasons for that are basically because a the region is majority armenian and the fact that it's currently controlled by azerbaijan seems to be a something of a irregularity of the post-soviet sort of um settlement which should have been corrected um but also because of the long history of um oppression of the armenians by uh azerbaijan by turkey by iran by russia uh by pretty much everyone else in the region um including of course the (coughs) armenian genocide of the early 20th century which the turkish state still officially denies um so yeah i'm pretty pretty upset that things have gone the way they have but also this plays into the sort of regional um power struggle so the turkey under erdogan has been flexing its muscles quite considerably over the last few years as many people will know it's been extending its um military power into northern syria it's been trying to crush the kurdish um autonomous regions in both northern syria and uh within its own borders. Um, and this backing of the Azerbaijani war against Armenia seems to me to be a further example of the fact that Erdogan's militaristic um, 
intentions to sort of attempt to dominate the sort of northern Middle East region, I suppose. Plus the fact that, the fact that he's been willing, both in Syria and now in this war, to ally himself with um, extremely dangerous, radical, uh, Islamist, Salafi jihadist militants. Um, despite the fact that one of the things that he claims of the Kurdish um, uh, self-defense forces is that they're terrorists is just, I mean, you know, yeah. But I don't really know what else to say other than that I'm, you know, it's it's awful that this has happened to uh, to the Artsakh Republic and to the Armenian people, and yeah, the EU has been pretty cowardly throughout, refused to really get involved. The Russians um, have interests in both Armenia and Azerbaijan, and so although in general... Uh, Russia has been moving to check Turkish power, and um, they have uh, allegedly been supplying arms to the Armenians during the conflict. Ultimately, they were sort of happy to broker this extremely unfavorable peace treaty, um, which shows that, again, their they're sort of vaunted uh, defense of their fellow Orthodox Christians <laughs> in, in Armenia is as false now as it has been for the last 200 years. Um, that's, that's the historian in me. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I don't really know what else to say except I wanted to talk about this because it's it's been in bubbling away in the back of my mind for a while, and I kept meaning to get to it, and too much other things kept going on, and yeah, it's, all right. it's I mean, awful. I'm really. fully aware that I don't know enough about this to um, to, uh, to say very much, and certainly not to say, say pick a side, as it were. Uh, but it strikes me that this is the sort of thing that, if we were to have a human rights and rules based international order there should be ways of um, arbitrating things like this beyond simply um the superpower maneuvering between turkey being a nato member and russia with its former mm-hmm. colony yeah no absolutely i mean it the the lack of the the eu's lack of willingness to um use its diplomatic heft to try and influence the outcome mm. here and try and bring things to a peaceful resolution to try and get the um, uh, the help uh, to to basically try and protect the rights of the Armenian population of Artsakh that are being infringed upon by the uh, Azerbaijan government who now completely envelop them and who claim their land. you got to wonder, would the EU have been uh, more willing to be more aggressive on this um, in years gone by, because the EU is uh, uh, it's 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 taken a lot of hits <laughs> over the last decade or so, um, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it definitely seems like it's it's I mean it struggles to um, control its own nations and stop them violating various human rights laws um, now. Yes, well, quiet. We're about to yeah. get to that. So. Um, so yeah, is that going to be a longer-term trend, um, or, or is the EU going to be able to, at some point, um, reassert itself as a? Or well, not that it ever entirely was. The EU's um, uh, got a sketchy record of its own. Um, yes, quite. Yeah, I, I, I don't have anything more coherent to say about that. I'm just rambling. Yeah. Yes. No, I mean, yeah, I, th- I think you're right, definitely right that the EU's been less willing to involve themselves. I mean, this is in many ways analogous to um, the 
Yugoslav wars that sort of broke out in the 1990s. Um, and the EU, or the, the European communities then was. Um, although they didn't sort of, they didn't quite have the sort of diplomatic structures that they, they have now, but they, the European countries in general were certainly more willing to involve themselves then, eventually, uh, than, than now. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to say other than it's awful. You should you should go and buy um, System of a Down's new single. Mm. Uh, System of a Down, for those who don't know, are an Armenian-American uh, alternative metal band from the 90s who got back together to release their first music in, I think it's like 15 years or something. Um... And they got together to release uh, their new sort of single in order to raise money to support um, Armenians uh, who have been affected, displaced, injured, and the families of those killed in this conflict. Um, so yeah, I will stick a link to where you can get that. Um, that's a good way to sort of send money to sort of help with the humanitarian efforts mm. there um yeah depressing but important but I, I wanted to mention it anyway yeah, quite so. right. there you go um okay let's talk about then as you mentioned the eu has been struggling to uh force its own member states to uh respect human rights, and one of those member states has been Poland. Um, Poland is controlled by the Law and Justice Party, who, as the name suggests, that is obviously the English translation of the yeah. name, um, as the name suggests, are hard right, um, kind of Christian nationalists, um, and they... The, the, have been spending the last several years stuffing the judiciary full of their own supporters, resulting in um, a legal decision on the 22nd of October, which brought in a virtually total ban on abortion within Poland. Um, there are some... Uh, uh, there are some exceptions, so um, content warning... Uh, for things that might reasonably be exceptions to uh, <laughs> abortions, but uh, they are banned unless they are the result of rape or incest. They put the mother's life... Birth, giving birth would put the mother's life at risk, or there are fetal deformities, um, which in and of itself as a reason for... You know, you can only have an abortion if your baby's going to be born disabled. That should tell you uh, something about the kinds of people we're dealing with here. Anyway... Um, Activists have quite rightly seen this as essentially a, um, a, a, a virtually complete abortion mm. ban and huge protest marches. Um, 100,000 people uh, at time have been out on the streets protesting uh, in the weeks since. There's also been a nationwide women's strike uh, with women across the country um, refusing to work and refusing to do uh, work within the home uh, in protest. And this is 
this has forced the government to, or the the, the judiciary in theory, but as I say, the, go- the government have been stuffing the judiciary full of their own loyalists for the last several years in complete violation of uh, any kind of principle of the separation of powers. So functionally, the government um, have now reversed, or said they're going to reverse the ruling, um, but the protests haven't stopped. Um, uh, the protests... Um, against the Law and Justice Party are ongoing, and, it, you know, the Law and Justice Party have been doing these kinds of things for years, and I think people have kind of just had enough. Um, and not, not a moment mm. too soon. Yeah. Poland, Poland uh, it, uh, as an aside, was the first country in Europe to legalise abortion um, beyond merely medical necessity for, to preserve the mother's life. First country in Europe. Uh, and now they're they're trying to take that right away, and obviously people haven't 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 been willing to to stand for it. Yeah, and good for them. Well, it shows that, so Polish politics is a bit odd in that they don't really have a left party. Oh, oh they do, but it's a it's a third, it's a small third party. Um, their main two parties are a liberal centrist mm-hmm. party and a populist right party. Um, it shows that regardless of uh, to what extent people are allowed or are locked out of um, parliamentary politics people will still organise and fight for things um, if they have the freedom to do so. Yeah. Uh, quite right. Yeah. But again, as you pointed out, the EU has not right. gotten involved here, right? I mean, they've said things, but they have the power to suspend Poland's membership. And the same in, in, in the case of Hungary. Uh, Viktor Orban, uh, sort of uh, the the head of Hungary, has, I can't remember if he's technically a prime minister or a president, doesn't really matter. Um, he's been doing similar things in Hungary, for years, um, if anything, Hungary is further down the road to outright yeah, authoritarianism yeah. than Poland. Um, uh, they've been closing universities. Um, there's been in both Hungary and Poland. There's been severe anti-Semitic um, pronouncements. Uh, you can't in Poland. You, you're not allowed to say that uh, the Poles collaborated with the Nazis uh, to affect the Holocaust against Polish Jews, even though that is objectively a historical fact. Um, and in Hungary, you've had, um, you know, uh, George Soros is Hungarian, and the Hungarian government has basically like, exiled him from the country and closed down anything he he's ever invested money in, um, because he's, you know, seen as this kind of Jewish financier um, in this extremely old uh, conspiratorial mode that goes back to the Rothschilds. Um, and the EU's done nothing, uh, nothing concrete on either on either case. You know, they have the power to suspend these countries from membership and to bring sanctions in against them uh, for the clearly illegal and authoritarian and anti-human rights things that they've been doing. They 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 just haven't. Hmm. Um, and really, they are. It's they're just the losing all moral the, authority. Um, the European system that it's extremely difficult to take um, action against a state without all the other states being unanimous against it, and because both Poland and Hungary are on this track. They tend to veto any action which anyone tries to take against the other. But the the, the way the European system is set up yeah. is extremely easy to game. Mm-hmm. I mean, Britain was great at gaming <laughs> when we were in. That's why it makes no sense that we're leaving. Uh, yeah, we, were, we were one of the best. You know, if us and the Dutch. That we've just left the EU, and would the EU be more willing to be more aggressive with its own member states? Because. Yeah, I definitely now think we're already out of the EU, and then we'll be out of the transition period by um, by uh, New Year's just coming. Um, so these, oh God. Uh, if the EU tries to be more aggressive with these groups, and they can just say the, the the populist group can turn to its own 
they can be aggressive with the EU about saying, well, we'll just leave if you're going to be like that. And they can turn to their own people and say, well, the British did it. Why wouldn't you be able to see? There's another reason why Brexit is a terrible idea, <laughs> whether you like the EU or not. I mean, it's precisely the fact that the EU is terrible at this kind of stuff is a reason why is it, why Brexit was a why an additional reason why Brexit was a bad idea, not an argument for Brexit. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So yes, it'll be difficult to say. Um, but it is. Yeah. But it is encouraging. Definitely encouraging that the, the Polish people appear to have sort of taken matters into their own hands, frankly, and and uh, decided to not only launch this protest movement but continue it after they got what they Absolutely. initially were campaigning really for. Point. That, um, um, that the the way to beat uh, this is a very important point. So I'm going to try and um, phrase it properly. When it comes to defeating this kind of right wing populism, we can't rely on this kind of procedural, legalistic concept of how you fight them. You can't just rely on the bureaucracy of the EU to deal with it because it's against the rules. That won't work. The only way to defeat this kind of movement is to have a proper um, mass um, popular progressive movement in the country. People need to organise, people need to fight for it. You can't just rely on legalism. Yep. And once you have that popular upsurge of resistance, you can do Mm. more than you even intended you know you can this is always the way with these kinds of protests is they get what they were initially formed to do and then if they hang in there and they keep marching eventually they will get more and more and more because the government is terrified because you know it it, it, it sounds trite but it's true there are just so many yeah. more of us than there yeah, are many them. Are few. and they they know full well they know full well that if the whole population or a sizable chunk of the population even, you know, gets fed up with them, and these people go out into the streets, and they reject the authoritarianism, and they reject the, you know, I don't think it's too ridiculous to call what's happening in Poland and Hungary sort of this sort of incipient implementation of fascism by sort it's of the middle stages of means. the process it, of a fascist movement. Yeah. Yeah. But they know that if people stand up and resist... Mm. They will lose. Poland Eventually, they'll lose because the Polish people they know this better than anyone else. Can't deal with any. Ever. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, just to mention it, because people don't necessarily know um, the solidarity process and what happened in the eighties, and um, that mm -hmm. Poland and a popular movement in Poland was extremely instrumental in and and kind of strikes for in, in, run by independent trade unions were it's particularly centered on Poland were, and Hungary. In fact, um, were instrumental in uh, ending mm -hmm. the Soviet Union's grip on Eastern Europe. Yeah. Solidarnosc. Yeah. It's also worth, just because yeah. I've mentioned it, um, it's worth pointing out every time that um, the anti-Soviet protests in Eastern Europe are mentioned, they weren't campaigning for uh, capitalism. These people mostly were socialists. Oh, goodness. They, no. What they wanted was democratic socialism rather than mm. Soviet socialism, yeah. which is not what they've gotten. <laughs> which by the, which by the 1980s is, was, was socialism yeah. in name only, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to complete our triple threat of somewhat depressing international news, um, I suppose the, 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 oh, the Polish story is um, sort of bittersweet. But yeah, D a depressing story followed by a, hmm. a resistance to the depressing story. Um, but uh, we should talk briefly, I think, about uh, Donald Trump again. So we're deliberately not talking too much about Trump today, but I did think it was important Everyone's to note that. 
Yeah. That means a different thing in the UK. For, 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 for American listeners or any other international listeners who don't know this, in the UK, Trump means fart. This has been massively underutilized um, in the last four years. He's a it little, really has. He's called Mr. Because... Trump. For God's sake. <laughs> I feel like we've all forgotten. Basically, what happened was... Like, Donald Trump's grandfather, his surname was Drumpf, right? And he moved from Germany to the United States, and the name was changed. I think, I can't remember if it was by his grandfather or by his father, but it was changed to Trump because that sounded... Like a fart. ...more sort of American and less, and less like a, like a European sort oh, of ethnic right. name. And he wanted to, you know, wanted to gain sense. respect, um, and Trump sounded sort of grand. But in, it, and that might be true in New York, I don't know, but in, in, in the UK, and in particular, sort of the, 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 uh, particularly in the Midlands, I think, where I have some family, yeah, but yeah, right. Trump means fart here. I always find that really funny. Before he was a politician, but, yeah, I always thought whenever he'd come up in the, in the news, because uh, he was a celebrity. Mm. Mr. Trump. It's always just funny. Yeah. Now that he's president, yeah. no one, no one mentions yeah. it. But he's called Mr. Fart. No. And that is funny. Yeah. It's it very is. stupid. It's just it's very genuinely funny. very funny. It's a bit like this happens a lot with America. I don't yeah, really know why um, this is, but things like um, there's a character in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the book, um, called Veruca Salt. But in America, they don't call Verrucas Verrucas. So they don't know that it means that. So it has actually become a girl's name in America. There are people called Veruca now. (laughs) Oh, goodness, it hasn't. But, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for for our America listeners, then a Veruca in the UK is a kind of fungal foot infection. On on Um, your foot. Yeah. Like a very very large one, generally. Yeah, they're not good. And hence Veruca Um, salts, because you put salt on them to treat it, supposedly, I think. Yeah. But because yes. it became popular internationally, um, in places where Veruca isn't the word for it, <laughs> that's very fa- I, the, the, they call it in America, though. Being called Trump always reminds me of the fact that there are people called Veruca as well. <laughs> Not to take the mic too much mm. out of America, it's a great country. They invented rock and roll, for example. Um, but there are some funny things about America, too. Yeah. <laughs> But that was, yeah, but uh, black no, people right. in America have invented rock and roll. White people in America <laughs> have very little to recommend them. Uh, it's called a plantar wart. Oh, right, okay. Uh, apparently, is what they call it in the States. That's less good name. Rook is better. Should change. Um, yeah. Anyway, the reason I bring him up is because uh, he's been um, so stuffing the Pentagon for his loyalists. So, um, not long after uh, the election... Uh, became results became clear that he was going to lose. Uh, Donald Trump fired the Defense Secretary Mark Esper, and less than a day later, um, fired another four senior civilian officials, um, uh, including the chief of staff, um, and replaced them with Trump loyalists. Now, it's interesting, right? Because these are political appointments. So it's not as if he's replacing civil servants who are still going to be there after yeah. Joe Biden takes over. These people can just be Biden can bring his know, own people if he wants. Gotten rid of by Biden the second he can he comes into office. Hmm. So why is he doing this? I mean, people people have obviously you know made the somewhat um, so, somewhat alarmist kind of claim that maybe he's sort of sending himself up for a military coup, which I think is possibly an overreach. But it, I don't know. It does. Normally, it is I would odd. agree that that's an overreach, um, and I think broadly I agree that it's an overreach. 
but just there's a little bit of the back of my mind that goes, ah. <laughs> there's a five percent chance that that is what he's planning. Yeah. It kind of it, yeah. It kind of is that. I doubt it. I don't know. Um, I mean, did you, I doubt it? Yes. I'd be surprised. But the thing is, I've been surprised. Also, even if that bit is what he's planning, it probably wouldn't succeed. Uh, he's, um, Biden has support. Of yes, more he's very unpopular of with the army. The, of of capital in America than than Trump does, and yeah. capital is who capital sides with is what will de- decide these things. And Biden doesn't really have like enemies in the military or anything. Mm. So there's, no, people wouldn't side with him. No, no, he's quite he's quite popular with quite a lot mm. of the officer brass actually. What well, I suppose that Trump raises the question of like if um, the Democrats had nominated Bernie and then he'd won this election, I, I would totally mm, be saying that, that would be more interesting. Likely that Trump's going to try for a military coup. Yeah, I mean he's much more popular Trump within the sort of non-army yeah yeah security forces. Right, so he's much more popular within the Homeland Security uh, and people yeah, like but that. It's, it's not like um, the, those who people have their own are, like, sort really, of military really hate Biden or afraid of him becoming president or anything. They're not going to tear America apart just so that they can hang on to one president who they like more than the other. Probably guy. not. Probably not most of them. No, probably not most of them. I, I, I think some of them yeah, are, yeah. are of that kind. Some of the sort of DHS people are, are very kind of, you know, because there's been a massive expansion in recruitment over the last few years. He's drawn in a lot of people who are sort of his supporters and into the police as well and similar. Mm. Even that's very yeah. unlikely anyway. But the army themselves are more, are more sort of, as you say, likely to side with um, capital and with the sort of Hmm. institutional status quo, I guess. Which is good, because if the army had defected to Trump, then that would be game over for American democracy. Even if a small element of the army defected, it would just be so uh, unprecedented. Mm. Yeah. So what do you think he is doing, then? I I don't know. Is it just spite? Um, Is he just not like these people? Uh, There's not really anything else he can do, and he feels like he has to do something. Like, is, is he just... He's mm. only got a few months left, so like fire everything, do 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 everything, <laughs> throw a lot of stuff at the wall mm. and see what mm. sticks. Yeah, could be it. I don't know. I don't mm. really have anything more to say on that either. There's a lot of sort of little little sort of international stories that I don't have a huge amount yeah. to say on, but I wanted to sort of mention. Otherwise, I feel like it's sort of we should have a section in the future of just things that we don't have much to say about, but that we should mention. So if we're not going to say anything Maybe about this, should. but listeners, Maybe we should have... if you want to hear more, Google these things. Yeah. Maybe we should have more of a sort of like a, like a, a structure to the show in general. Listeners, yeah, write nice. in. Do you want sort of like, do you want like a question and answer session and stuff like that? I don't know. I mean, if people send me in a question, then you can you can ask us questions. Yeah, that would be good, yeah. We're, we're on Facebook and Twitter and... Get the hashtag engagement. Yeah. Yeah, we're on we're on Twitter at, at Aha Dispatches if you wanted to know, and we're on Facebook at just type Revolutionary Dispatches in the search bar. I'm not giving you the whole bloody URL; it takes forever. Yeah, we're we're there. <sighs> yeah, we're everywhere. Mm-hmm. We're not. We're in those two places, and also SoundCloud and YouTube. I suppose and, you can have comments yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, we're on YouTube. Yeah, I finally got. For those who didn't notice, I finally got my video software up and running again. So I managed to upload everything to YouTube mm. properly. For some reason, Resolve was... I don't know if you know Resolve. It's a popular video editing program. For some reason, it wasn't working, and I uninstalled it and reinstalled it, and it still wasn't working, and I had to do this whole scrub and and reinstall it bit by bit. 
it kept it kept coming up with error messages, and I had to like, retry, and then it would do a bit more, and then it'd be an error, and then I'd retry, and then I'd do a little bit more, and it, and eventually it worked. But it was really weird. I don't know what was going on with it. Anyway, I did it, and it took me bloody ages. So go and watch it on YouTube. Get those view counts up. Yeah. Like, share, and subscribe, people. You should share the podcast. If you like the podcast, you should share it. That's Sharing my answer our podcast for the, for the is practice. If you like the podcast, share it. It is. It's very good practice. It's the best practice. It's. It's. We have the best practice. You've got to use these jokes up while we still can. You see. Yeah. Good point. Um, the lack. Of, the, the end of the era of Donald Trump well, jokes is going possibly. to be up to the hill. I mean, he's going to rumble on. But um, yeah. Yeah. Rumble, yeah. rumble, rumble, it's rumble, rumble like in the background. Bad, Trump no, TV. Like a bad Trump. Yeah. <laughs> like a fart. Yeah. Right. You wanted to talk about yeah, one more thing before we left, a, so I will. Positive. I will let you do that. Quick thing to mention. Uh, we, we've mentioned it before on the show, but it has been a development in one of the stories. Um, just very, very quick mm. recap. Um, Eva Morales is the first indigenous um, leader of Bolivia. A. Um, the, the, I believe the only majority indigenous state in the Americas um, uh, and uh, an all-round top lad um, <laughs> um, with, a, with a, a great program whilst he was president who was forced out in a coup um, earlier this year um, uh, it was uh, extremely violent a very nasty um, period of time there were you know um, there are fascists on the other side people with um, going around with guns on motorbikes, murdering indigenous people, whatever. And just relatively recently, um, new elections were called, and his party, MAS, the Movement to Socialism, um, very, very handily won those elections, but he was still in exile. He, since we last recorded, has now returned triumphant to Bolivia, to huge crowds um, celebrating. Yeah. Um, it, it was a brilliant video I was watching where he's he's driving along the road from the sort of from the from the airport back mm. to his home hometown, and he kept having yeah. to get out at every village they passed because yeah. people were mobbing his car because uh, they wanted to sort of celebrate with him. So he kept having to get out and sort of they would give pushing food into his hands and yep. presents and things. People adore. Him. There's, there's a yeah. really cute picture of him um, really at do. his childhood home that he was finally able to visit again after coming back to Bolivia. Um. Yeah, uh, yeah. He said that there was. Um, so he's not uh, leader of Bolivia anymore, um, but his party has won the elections, and no. he is still head of the party. And but he's more he's moving into the um, the movement side of the party now. MAS is a very very broad based, um, vibrant movement with a very powerful grassroots, and he's sort of working in that and in the trade unions more. Um, but to the <laughs> crowd, uh, there's part of his speech that um, has stuck in my head, um, is that he said. Uh, we now have three reasons to party. Uh, the first one is that MAS have won the election. The second is that um, I've been able to return home. Do you know what the third one is? The third one is that um, uh, the gringo gave us this coup, and now not only have we beaten the coup, we have struck back at the gringo in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> Huge roar from Fantastic. the crowd. <laughs> Can Donald Trump truly be said to be a gringo when he is uh, orange? Good question, yes. Answers on a postcard yeah. from our Spanish-speaking yeah, listeners, so. please. I know you're out there because I have data on what... I suppose you could be English-speaking yeah. in, in, in Spain and the Philippines, but I'm hoping you at least speak enough mm. Spanish to tell us the answer. Actually, I don't even know. Is gringo a, um, a, a Latin American sort of word that other Spanish speakers worldwide don't use, or is it just a normal Spanish word? Well, I think it is a Latin American word, actually. Right, well, if we have any Latin American... 
uh, Spanish and Portuguese in particular less speaking listeners mm. then uh, let us know are you are you still a gringo if, but it's this beautiful turnaround um, a few months ago Morales was had been forced out in a coup was in exile and Donald Trump was in the White House and now now look at us yeah brilliant yeah I yeah. think that's a good place to end it so do I I've got a big smile on my face and if we talk about anything else I'm Absolutely. not going to have one anymore <laughs> so thank you comrades for your time and attention be absolutely excellent to one another stay safe and viva la revolution <laughs>